Psalm 11 is where we're going to be this morning. I was asked this morning, what happened to Acts? She was just being funny. She just, you know, you know wanting to complain about something this morning because she figured I, I needed to hear something. So, but I'll tell you what happened to Acts. Christmas, and then Lord's Supper, and then uh, Vision Sunday, which I'm still excited about, by the way. And then Dr. Jamie Dew, who preached a phenomenal message last week. Uh, still thinking about that one. And then next week, Dr. Joe McKeever will be back with us. He'll be meeting with our deacon Saturday night. And then he'll be preaching in our service Sunday morning. And then the next Sunday, whatever date that is, February 2nd, maybe? We will be back in Acts. So we'll, there you go. We'll be back. I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to let that one go. Uh, we'll be back in Acts. But this morning, we're doing what I usually do when there are gaps and we're between series. Uh, we're, we go to the Psalms. And this morning, we are on Psalm 11 because it came after 10. That's the formula I use. Numbers. I can't add them. Subtract them, multiply them, or divide them, but I can do them in order, and that's where we are. Psalm 11, Refuge in the Lord is our passage, our title this morning. I lifted that straight out of Scripture. I just took what the Scripture said and made that the title. It seemed easiest. Thought that was a pretty good formula as well. So Psalm chapter 11, it'll be on the screen uh, if you'd like to follow along there. If you would like to follow along in a, a copy of God's Word, you can use what is in the pew rack in front of you. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we would love for you to take that Bible home with you so you can have uh, your own copy. Psalm 11, we're going to read the whole thing. It's all of seven verses. David writes, I have taken refuge in the Lord. There's the title, right? I'm clever. How can you say to me, escape to the mountains like a bird? For look, the wicked string bows. They put their arrows on bowstrings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? David's quoting some people there. Now he gives his answer. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord, his throne is in heaven. His eyes watch. His gaze examines everyone. The Lord examines the righteous but he hates the wicked and those who love violence. Let him rain burning coals and sulfur on the wicked. Let a scorching wind be the portion in their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright will see his face. That's our passage this morning, Psalm 11. Again, you see the, the title there from the passage, Refuge in the Lord. This psalm here that uh, David wrote is a psalm of confidence. It, it, it's kind of fits the genre of uh, psalms of lament. It has a little of that to it, but it's, it's much more confidence here. Uh, he, he could have said a lot of things that he does say in other psalms that he doesn't hear. But what you need to see is verse 1 and verse 7, verses 1 and verse 7 show us the Lord's care. And the Lord's care brackets the psalm. 
It's almost as if, maybe we can get this image in our head as we go through this, as if God is holding the attacked rider in his arms. He's got the left arm of verse 1 and the right arm of verse 7. And everything that goes on in the middle is in God's grasp. It's in his arms. The writer, the author David here, is in his arms. But, but more than that, as we're going to see as we look through Scripture, we're, we're, we're going to see that it's all in God's arms. He's aware of it all. He's not left David. He's, he's not put him to his own devices. Instead, the Lord is there. Yahweh, the word he uses for the Lord, our translations will have LORD in all caps, L-O-R-D, Cap, big capital L, little capital, little capital, little capital O-R-D, Lord. That means that it is using the covenant name for God, Yahweh. Not Elohim or Adonai or some other name for God, but Yahweh, the covenant name. That name, Yahweh, is mentioned five times by the psalmist, three times in the emphatic position. Now, I know I've talked about this before, but I'll remind you again, Greek and Hebrew Word order matters, but you can kind of put words wherever you want to because words and nouns, verbs, adjectives, they all have endings that tell you where, what word goes with what word. In English, if you put something out of order, it kind of messes us up. That's why Yoda is a little confusing for us sometimes. We're like, wait a minute, he put that in the wrong spot. Well, in Hebrew or Greek, you can do that. And as a matter of fact, they do it on purpose. And they will put particular words at the beginning or the end of a sentence to give it emphasis, to give it punch. So here, three times in verses 4 through 7, the psalmist puts Yahweh first, emphatically. He doesn't have to. In English, if we translate it literally, it makes it a very difficult sentence to read. But in Hebrew, they got it. They understood, wow, he wants us to get something here. Who's in charge? Who's in control? Well, there are some various characters, various, uh, uh, um, various, cast, various cast members in this psalm. There's David, who's the writer and who's speaking. There are some advisors, some friends maybe, uh, maybe along the lines of Job's friends. Maybe these are court uh, advisors telling him what to do. They're the attackers that we really don't hear from. We just know that they are there. And there's Yahweh. Those are the four, that's the cast of four in this, in this psalm. David mentions the Lord five times. The advisors don't mention him at all in the quoted passage that we have from David. And since there's no mention of anything that the, the attackers say, it's, it's kind of a... Uh, a loud silence that they don't mention Yahweh either. David does, though. David knows who he's looking at. David knows who he's going to. David understands that in this situation with these people around me, who I need to listen to. Now, this psalm was very likely uh, written as an encouragement to these advisors. The advisors we hear from in verses 1b through 3, and we'll get to what they say in a minute. But this psalm was most likely written as an, an encouragement to them. This is what you say, but understand it this way. But it's also could certainly serve as a warning to the attackers because verses 4 through 7 talk about what's coming for them 
because of what they are doing to David. And if we had a general theme for this psalm, refuge in the Lord, certainly, but as a theme, we would say confidence above bad advice. Listening to the one that we're supposed to listen to instead of the many that might have advice but may not be the advice we need to take. So we see in this passage some, uh, almost a story is told through this psalm, and we get some understandings for our position in life when attacks come, when things go wrong, when the uh, uh, storms rise and, and, and thunder rolls, when these things happen in our lives, we've got to be prepared, we have to be ready, and we go into it knowing, in verse 1a, who our true refuge is. Our true refuge. That's the first thing we see in the first half of verse 1. I have taken refuge in the Lord. That's interesting that he says it this way. I have taken refuge in the Lord. He's telling us that he's taken refuge before he tells us why. Now, it, it could be just literary, just poetic. It's, it's the way he uh, the, the Holy Spirit led him to uh, write this psalm. It may be just that, but I think there's a hint more to it in this passage. I think we can certainly learn something from it. He has taken refuge before the attack. As he gives us the narrative in this psalm, he takes refuge, and then we learn why he took refuge. Maybe, maybe it's not I took refuge because, but instead I took refuge and I was ready. My refuge was in the Lord. See, our true refuge is God in all situations. There's not a time that we should take refuge in the Lord above other times. There's no time that says, well, now I've got to turn to God. When all else fails, pray, right? We've seen that maybe as a, as we've heard it as a saying. We see it as maybe a social media post or a meme. When all else fails, pray. You know what that's saying? When you've done everything you can do and thought of every possible way you can think of, when you've exhausted all of your strength, when you have uh, said, I got it, I've got it, I've got it, I got it, I don't got it, when you finally come to that, when there's nothing else you can do, then, as a last-ditch effort, pray. No. No, pray. Before anything else starts, pray. Before anything comes up, Pray in all situations, at all times, find your refuge in God. Now, I've, I've used our life as a, a testimony before and talked about the, the seven years that we walked in the wilderness after, after telling God no back in 2003. Actually, probably a little earlier, it was probably 2002 that we told him no. We said, no, we don't want to go there. We don't want to do that. And he said, fine. 
And for the next seven years, we walked in a wilderness. Eight years, nine years maybe. We walked in a wilderness. Well, now, now hopefully, I've learned, first of all. But secondly, I can... I go to God as a refuge now so that later on when I'm given a choice, I'm told A or B, A or B, and God says A, but I really want B, I've already found my refuge in him. I have taken refuge in the Lord, so I'm ready to do what he says. And if A, which is his command, is the harder path, I've already taken refuge in him. So when the trials come because of the harder path that he told me to take, I'm ready for them. Why? Because I have taken refuge in the Lord. Refuge in the Lord should be where we live. That should be it. That should be always, we should work out of a position of refuge with the Lord. I don't, I don't care that the world might say that I'm using my religion as a crutch or I have to depend on God. I should address the world like a, a three-year-old peeking out from behind mama and daddy. But I'm standing behind God. Everything I do, I'm addressing as he's got this. I depend on him. He's my, he's, I don't, I don't care what it is. I, you got to come through him to get to me. I have to go to, through him to get to it. He's going to stop me. He's going to tell me to go. I have taken refuge. I'm a three-year-old hiding behind mama's apron, and I'm fine with that. I've taken refuge in him. Normally, when David begins a psalm about relying on God, it's followed by an appeal, usually to God. I, Lord, I've taken refuge in you. Now do this for me. Now heal me. Now protect me. Now slay my attackers, whatever it is. But that's not what he does here. There's no appeal. Instead, it is followed by a statement of confidence. Verses 4 through 7 are statements of, a, of, of confidence. I know what God's going to do. Why? Partially because he has been with the Lord through other situations that were bad, other attacks. He's seen what God uh, has done, and he knows that God's going to act the same way. But the other reason he knows what God's going to do. The other reason he can say this, make a statement of confidence in verses 4 through 7 is because he has lived in refuge. He lives hiding behind God. And we all know that there were times when David got out in front and had the idea of what to do. And, and one of those ideas was Bathsheba. One of those ideas was the many wars he fought that he ended up not being able to build the temple because of the blood on his hands. He, we, we know the, the, the many, many times we, we have gotten out from behind that protective apron of God and said, oh, I've got this one, Lord. And we mess things up royally. Come back. And so we know we, we, we can be confident. We've seen him work. The author has. So he, he feels no need for an appeal because he lives within the arms of verse 1 and verse 7. 
that's where he is. That's where he has stayed. So when the oceans rise and thunders roar, he is prepared. He knows his anchor holds. He knows his ship will float because he's been on that ship for a long time. The dummies are the ones that jump ship first time the wind blows a little hard. Sorry, I didn't mean to call people dummies. It's not smart, though. That's kind of the same. So we see him take refuge. When Satan attacks, God is our security. This refuge is our security. I, I had a, a, a dog years ago. Actually, I, it was my, my second dog. I had one. He got run over uh, because he chased golf balls on the golf course. And the golfers didn't like that. And the golf, the greenskeepers didn't like that. Jim, you wouldn't have liked my dog on the golf course. Uh, we lived in the middle of the 16th fairway. And if you had a good shot, it quickly became a bad shot. Uh, it, ended up be, it ended up being a shot on our porch. There was no hiding. What? Anyway, the, the greenskeepers tried to hit him with their trucks and lawnmowers and golf carts. And uh, they got him one day with the truck, not with the lawnmower, thankfully. But I was 11. And that was my first dog. That was Biscuit. That was his name. Some of you might remember there's a cartoon called Biscuit. Biscuit, little dogs. Anyway, I digress. My second dog was Dolly. Dolly was a Springer Spaniel. She was the replacement for Biscuit. We got her fairly quickly after Biscuit. Dolly was the sweetest dog I've ever seen. Now, we've had a number of dogs since then, but she was a sweet, sweet dog. We, when we moved to uh, Louisiana from Alabama, when I was 15, uh, we, we lived on a, built a house on a street that didn't have any other houses. We were surrounded by woods, so Dolly got to roam free now for the, the, the rest of her life. She was kind of, as they built houses, people knew her. She was the neighborhood dog. It was fine. It wasn't a big deal. One day, my mom, who was uh, in a wheelchair at the time, was outside, and, and a neighbor's boxers had gotten loose. And, and, and they weren't mean. They were just, well, from what I know of boxers, they were just boxers. They were, they were crazy. Bouncing all over the place, jumping. Anyway, Dolly took off after the boxers. She wasn't a fighting dog, but man, she had a low bark. It was weird. Even when she was a puppy, she had this low bark. She took off after him. Another time, that my mom was outside, and there was a guy who came up who was selling door to door or something and Dolly came from around the house and 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 got right in front of my mom and and between her and the salesman and she didn't growl she didn't bark but she didn't take her eyes off of him Dolly was a security Dolly was what came between my mom in that situation and the man Another time we, we had cleared the, the lot where the house was, we, we had cleared ourselves and we'd stacked up this firewood over the weeks and months and, and, and you know, this was outside of Baton Rouge, so water, right? So uh, we began to take the firewood and of course we knew, be careful, snakes could have gotten in there at any point and, and sure enough there was something, snake about this long, black, uh, I don't think it was a water moccasin, but for the story, that's what I'll say, right? Make it better. Well, Dolly scared me to death. She 
sees it, she goes in. I'm thinking, dog, you've never messed with a snake? Well, she dances around. This is in her prime. She could do this. She dances around it. She waits. That snake strikes. She jumps to the side. She catches it behind the head, flips her head twice, slices its neck. Snake's dead. Most amazing thing I have ever seen. She was the best dog ever. Why do I tell you all about Dolly? We didn't ask her to do any of those things. We didn't train her to do any of those things. It's just what she did because she was our dog. She was going to protect, especially me, but the whole family. Now, that's a dog who, who just owes some allegiance because we fed her and scratched her behind the ears. Our security is God. When Satan attacks, he doesn't see us. Of course, maybe unless we get out in front. He's got to come through God. Go back and read Job. The devil had nothing he could do with Job until he asked for, permi for permission. When Satan attacks, God is our security. I need to move on. That's a good spot, though. We, we turn to our refuge in the Lord, verses 1b through 3, when good ideas are bad. When good ideas are bad. Common sense, we say today, is far too uncommon. I would say that common sense isn't always very sensical. Common sense isn't always God's sense. Verses 1b through 3, uh, these advisors say, because David says to them, how can you say to me, escape to the mountains like a bird? Now, humans don't run to mountains for protection, not in this day. This is Jerusalem. They had mountains and caves that was everywhere. As a matter of fact, they went to the wilderness. If they wanted to hide, they, they went to the wilderness. But in this case, it's a metaphor. Be like a bird. Go wherever it's safest. Run away. Escape to the mountains like a bird. For look, the wicked string bows. They, they put their arrows on bowstrings to shoot them from the shadows of the upright in heart. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Give up. Running, giving up, giving in. These all look like the best response to trouble sometimes. Maybe most of the time. It's hard, leave. It's bad, run away. It's dangerous, hide. It says here that the attackers attack from the dark. Shoot from the shadows. You don't see them. Their, their, their plots and their plans and, and, and their hurts come out of nowhere as far as the attacked one uh, uh, feels and, and seems to the attacked one. So you don't see it coming. And there's no defense against it. But there's, there's something a little more here. <clears throat> and, and you get in English a little bit of a sense of them shooting in the dark, hoping to hit the target. Now, we can hide easier in the dark, so, so that's not their entire meaning, but I, 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 there's a little of that there. That they're, they're just shooting, oh, I hope I hit them with whatever I'm using. You know, think of a machine gun. I'll get something. But, but, but more accurately, they are hiding. And they're shooting their, their arrows from the shadows. And, and the attacks are right there. It, it says uh, the wicked, they've strung their bows, their arrows are on, they've notched it, and they've pulled back. 
They are ready. The, the bow is taut. It is about to be shot. It is coming. And worse than that, these advisors say, not only is the attack imminent, it's going to happen. As a matter of fact, the, the arrows may be in the air at this moment. <clears throat> they say the foundations are destroyed. They're gone. And their idea here is that when it's customary, when it's expected, when it's the way of the land for people to attack the upright for no reason other than their personal gain, the bases, the foundations of a society are gone. So they're, they're saying, run, they're going to attack, they're already attacking probably, and there's no hope. There's nothing you can do. What can the righteous do? It's a rhetorical question, but rhetorically the answer is no. There's nothing to do but run. And the truth is, running, giving up, giving in, will be what you feel like doing when Satan attacks. That'll be your, your fight or flight response, That's, and, and primarily you're going to choose flight when it's that sort of attack, because there's nothing, the foundations are gone. What can you do? It will also be the advice that you're given. Well, you just need to leave. You just need to get out of the situation. You need to just give up the fight. It's not going to do any good. You're not able to do anything in this situation. And you know what? They will be right. You won't be able to do anything in this situation. You will be utterly unable to fight the attack coming at you. Because they're attacking from the shadows. How are you going to stop them? You don't know where the arrows are coming from. You don't know who is shooting them. You don't have any plan. There's no uh, method for getting rid of that sort of attacker. So the only thing you can do, the advisors will tell you, and your own emotions will tell you, is to run. But our truth here is that when Satan attacks, your safest place is with God. Your safest place is with God. That means wherever he tells you to be, that is where you're safest. That is where you should be. So if he tells you to run, buddy, you best hightail it out of there. It's a Mississippi thing, hightailing. You Y'all good with that? Okay. I never know. I learned them all from my daddy, so I never know what phrases work in other places. You hightail it. it railroad men, you highball. Okay, anyway, it, you get out if God tells you to go, but sometimes, I would dare say most of the time, God says, you just stay by me, boy. This is where you're safest, and I'm not moving. And so we stay with him. We wait. But how can we do that? What, what in the world gives us the confidence to do that? Verses 4 through 7, particularly verses 4 and 5, there are certain facts about God that need no defense or evidence. Verse 4, David does not defend these statements about God. He just makes them. And, and he ends them with, in Hebrew maybe, there's a little duh at the end of it. There's no Hebrew letter, duh. There should be, though. He, he should end this with, the Lord's in his holy temple, duh. The Lord, his throne is in heaven, duh. 
His eyes watch, duh. His gaze examines everyone, duh. God is far off yet close up. If we just take the first half of verse four, we see that God is transcendent, universal, all-powerful, and that is great. David says to his advisors, David says to his attackers, God is up there and big. Big whoop. It's not that, there's not much, that, uh, there's not much confidence built in a God that is distant and far off. Even if we know he's powerful, the question then becomes, is he paying attention though? Is he too far off to see me? Is he somewhere where he can't step in immediately? Is he watching? Oh, David doesn't stop though. He's in his holy temple, yes. His throne is in heaven, yes. But his eyes watch. God is intimate, imminent, and aware. His eyes watch. His gaze examines. This is not... This is not me watching football on a Sunday afternoon when I'd rather be taking a nap, okay? This isn't me watching football. It's how I watch football on Sunday afternoons. Honestly, last few months, that's just my Sunday afternoon. I'm not even watching football anymore. I'm just taking the nap. It's not that sort of watching where God's got other things on his mind. These are intense words. His eyes watch, his gaze examines. As a matter of fact, the, the word examines here, you might think back to your grade school days and you take, if you had an older teacher, you didn't take a test, you took an examination or an exam. I had older teachers that said examination. Your examination today on your math, oh, uh-oh. An examination, he, he, he tests, he discovers the real truth. God is not me on the recl- in the recliner or on the couch watching, uh, watching football games. That was an inside joke that just got me in trouble. <laughs> I don't have a recliner. We just have a couch. That's not me on the couch watching football. That's not the examine. That's not the testing. That's not the watching. It's the referees, and I'm not talking about the referees that call the Saints games. I'm talking about the other referees that do it right. It's the referees that are examining every, supposed to be, every play. Watching. You've got the the line judge making sure they're lined up, and you've got the back judge, and you've got the, the referee, and they're all looking at every spot, supposedly, watching and examining everything to make sure it's done the right way. That's the kind of watching, only much, much better than NFL refs. That's the kind of watching we're talking about. He examines, he discovers the real truth, and he doesn't need instant replay which they get wrong anyway, so why do they have it? He doesn't need that. He doesn't have to go back and think, now, was that out of bounds on that guy's part? Was that, was that attack out of bounds? or was this? He knows because he is imminent. He is intimate. He is aware. When Satan ta- attacks, God is big enough to handle it and close enough to know about it. When Satan attacks, God is big enough to handle it and close enough to know about it. Tell him, sure, but he already knows. Plead your case, absolutely. 
but he already knows. He's aware. And he is doing something about it. You need to move forward, please, ma'am. Pat, when Satan, there we go. When he attacks, when Satan attacks, God is big enough to handle it and close enough to know about it. And when he knows, when he examines, when his gaze is on everyone, verse five, God knows the truth. He knows the truth. God, the Lord examines the righteous, but he hates the wicked and those who love those who love violence. First of all, God examines the attacked and knows the heart. When you, Satan attacks you, he knows your heart. None of this business, well, I didn't do anything wrong. He knows your heart. And he knows if you didn't do anything wrong, but he also knows if you did. So going to God and saying, well, I deserve it. Well, you don't deserve nothing, he says, because you did this and this and this and this. And this. Oh, that's right. He knows the heart of the attacked and he knows, he examines the attacker and knows his heart or her heart, knows the heart of the attacker. God is fair. God is just. God is aware. And when he examines, in this case, in this verse, this idea, the wording in Hebrew here means that the very examination of God automatically makes the division. Think of the sheep and the goats. Think of how he, Jesus will divide one day. You never knew me, depart from me, etc. It's the same kind of image we have here. By God's very examination of the heart, he automatically, and it is declared and done, who is righteous and who is wicked? He's aware of that. It, it, it is a label that you can't argue your way out of. It's a, it's a label that you can't defend against. When God examines, the decision is made. That should be an incredible hope for us. And an incredible, um, uh-oh for us because just as he knows the heart of the wicked whom those whom we would call wicked he knows the heart of us when we say but we're righteous he doesn't just examine though he takes action he does things about it verse 6 will tell us when satan attacks god knows the heart of all involved he knows every heart. He knows what's going on. And then lastly, verses 6 and 7, God acts. God acts. Let him rain burning coals and sulfur on the wicked. David had a thing for ending it abruptly, right? Let a scorching wind be the portion in their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright will see his face. So the first thing we see is that the wicked are punished. This verse 6 heaps up devastation along the lines of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the image we get here as David writes. And, and these sorts of punishments, this scorching wind, which is basically the destruction of everything they think they can count on, their land, their crops, themselves, 
makes the arrows of the attackers uh, seem pretty silly. You got arrows? <laughs> I got fire and brimstone and scorching winds. What you going to do, bud? You, you want to try to step up again? No. And he says, David does, let a scorching wind be the portion in their cup. It is the right act. It is the righteous act of a righteous God, or I should say the just act of a righteous God to punish the wicked. And he says the right are vindicated. For the Lord is righteous, verse 7. He loves righteous deeds. Look first, though, that the Lord is righteous. God is righteous. So when we get to the end of this, and, and maybe, maybe in some of our situations, we find that I was not quite as righteous in this situation as I thought I was. God is just. And he will make you aware and take the necessary steps to correct you, to redirect you. But he does that because he is righteous. He will not unjustly, the punish, uh, unjustly punish the wicked. He will not unjustly reward the righteous. We will all get our due and he will do it correctly. He examines the righteous though. Verse 7, David has turned his head, his face, back to him, himself, back to the, the, the right arm of this bracket of God's care and concern and his refuge. And says he examines the righteous. He knows the truth. But then the last half of verse 7, uh, there's a little translation uh, discussion there. Either that verse says the upright will see his face, and that's the way our translation puts it, or it reads, he, God, will see the face of the upright. And they're both good. They both have uh, wonderful aspects to them. There's not a, a, a lot of difference. Either God sees me and he knows me, or God allows me to see him and allows me to know him. Either way, the reward is I'm with God. The righteous see him. He sees the righteous. And, and, and this psalm could be a loop. We could, and that brings us back to verse 1. God is our refuge, a very good refuge. I don't know. That psalm might not work there. But that's what it does. God is our refuge. God loves us. God is concerned about us. God examines us. When Satan attacks God takes care of the ending. But God, I want to take care of the ending. I have my plans for how this should work out. I have to do it a certain way in order for me to be justified, in order for me to be defended, in order for me to be righteous. And he says, maybe. Maybe that is what I want you to do, but maybe it isn't. Let me take care of the ending. You be obedient. When Satan attacks, we must be obedient and allow God to take care of the ending. <clears throat> Excuse me. So when, when, not if, when the attack comes, did you hear me? Believers, not if. When? 
when the attack comes on the believer, the arms of God's refuge are wrapped around his child. Live there. Live in the refuge of God. Live behind the apron. Live with the world in front and God in between you and them. Believer, we have that confidence, we have that hope. Let me ask you though, are you his? Are you his child this morning? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? See, these attacks from Satan are the result of brokenness. They're a result of, the, of a broken world. They're a result of our own sinfulness. See, God's plan, God's design was a perfect world with no brokenness, no attacks from Satan. That was the way he designed everything. And then we stepped in and we thought we had a better idea. We thought we had a better plan than God's. Actually, we can go back to our uh, multiple great-grandmother and grandfather, and they started it for us. They sinned. They chose not to follow God's plan, not to follow his design, and that is sin. You can go ahead and skip forward, please, Miss Pat. And that sin always leads to brokenness. That sin always leads to attacks from Satan. Always. Now sometimes we want to blame Satan for things that are really just us. Yeah, I know I called some people dummies earlier. I'm the dummy most of the time. In my own life, I create the problems that I'm, I'm having in my life most of the time. I don't have to blame Satan. I just got to look in the mirror. But sometimes that brokenness comes from other places. But it really doesn't matter, does it? The blame at this point is, is, is pointless. The fact is, we live in a broken world, and we are going to try to fix it, and we can't. We think, like the advisors, escape to the mountain like a bird. You fix it. You fix the brokenness in your life. You fix the addiction. You fix the, 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 the sinful habit. You fix the, the marriage. You fix this. You fix that. That's what our advisors say. And God says, you can't. Come to me. Let me be your refuge. Come to me, Jesus says, all you, are who, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my, what did we talk about in Sunday school this morning? Take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is where we find our hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross taking my sins, my punishment for those sins, rising three days later to prove his victory so that I could come to him and give him my brokenness and take his yoke. And I do that by repentance and belief. I do that when I trust Jesus as my Savior. And then I begin to recover and pursue God's design. And then I'm put in a position where I can hide behind God. 
and address the world from a place of refuge and security. And the attacks will still come. And they'll come from the shadows where we can't see. But never will we find ourselves overwhelmed. I wish I could remember the verse. If I'd remember the song, I could do it. Crushed, but not forsaken. Shot down, but not destroyed. I, I, so many descriptors there of what can happen. But we are undefeated. No condemnation. Nothing can take us out of his hand. The verses of hope throughout Scripture happen over and over and over that the attack will not succeed for those who are in Christ. Are you in Christ today? You need to repent of your sins and believe that Jesus is who he says he is and trust him for your salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can hide behind you and whether the world says it's weakness, cowardice, call me names, I don't care. I stand in you. In the refuge created by your encompassing arms. Lord, I pray for a defense against the attacks for all of us. When Satan comes, we would find ourselves in you. But Lord, this morning at this point, I pray for those who do not have that refuge, who do not have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. They've, they've tried to fix this on their own. They have tried to, to fix the brokenness by depending on God in their own way, saying, God, I don't want to come to you through Jesus. I want to come to you through my own way. That's just another method of fixing it on our own, and it fails. You have set the standard, you have set the way, and Jesus is the way. I pray that they would respond in faith this morning and trust you as their Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to take a couple of minutes now. As Misty plays, the altar's open to pray. Where you are, pray. Continue to pray for our church. Pray for a, 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 a grasping of the vision that God has given us and the ways that you may be a part of that vision. Pray for those who've lost loved ones. Pray for our sick. Pray that you will have in God a permanent, constant refuge. That you are not having to turn to God when Satan attacks, but you are there. You are looking at the world from behind God. Let's pray. Let's do business with him. When Mindy begins to sing, we'll sing too. Tom will be to my right. I'll be over here on the left. If you'd like us to pray with you, we'd love to do that. So let's change positions, have a time of prayer, and do business with the Lord this morning.